Hi, everyone, and a very Merry Christmas to everyone out there who's listening to this episode of Nutshell Politics. I am your charming host, Justin Kinney. As I'm sure everybody knows, tomorrow is Christmas Day. So today's episode is going to be just a short, quick one. I think it'll be really interesting, though. We're going to talk about a famous Christmas tradition in politics, or a famous Christmas story, I should say, in politics, the famous Christmas truce of 1914. So the Christmas truce of 1914 is a a famous, famous story. It took place about 100 years ago, just over 100 years ago now. And it's actually become almost... um, almost like like a myth at this point. I mean, it is very true, and we'll talk about what happened, but it's become almost mythologized in, in retellings over the years. And so it's it's really kind of a fascinating and symbolic story, a very symbolic moment of peace in what had been, up to this point, a very devastatingly violent war. So even though we're about 100 years or so out from it, you know, the World War One still looks... Absolutely terrible. I mean, in the four years of the war, something like 25 million people were either killed or wounded, uh, many horribly wounded. And so this unique story comes along about five or so months into the war. So during that first five months, we had seen the Germans attacking uh, into France, going through Belgium, and they had fallen back into some defensive positions and kind of settled along a handful of of, of war lines on this Western front here. And even though we had kind of settled into a bit of a lull in the fighting overall, it, uh, as it was getting colder out, it became very clear by you know November, December of 1914, that this war was not something that was going to be over quickly. It was going to go on very, very long time. And so a lot of the professional soldiers had kind of settled into their way of life in these trenches, as this is kind of how it was going to be for the next little while. They were exhausted after months and months of fighting, but, you know, we had kind of a situation where there were a lot of trench warfare and crouched down inside each of these trenches, sometimes not even that far away from each other, were soldiers living their lives. And so it's not very difficult for a soldier in one trench to start thinking about what's happening in some of these other trenches as well. And so in certain areas of this kind of trench warfare system, there was a, a live and let live attitude that kind of developed. Not necessarily like a friendly fraternization per se, but there were a series of kind of reciprocal periods of time where you were, were, were soldiers basically kind of informally agreed not to shoot at each other. And so a lot of times this was simply to go recover bodies and things like this. But over time, we saw a couple of these start to expanded to something larger, you know, swapping uh, cigarettes, you know, bantering with each other, you know, those types of things, these kind of informal, very temporary truces, again, mostly to recover wounded soldiers, bury the dead, or to kind of shore up your damaged trenches and, and those sorts of things. And a lot of this at the time was really seen as being almost like good manners, like the professional etiquette of, of what war should be, you know, the rules of war. Now, on December 7th of 1914, the Pope at the time, a man by the name of Benedict XV, had proposed a kind of widespread official, what he called a truce of God. And this, he was basically trying to say that all hostilities across the continent should cease over this entire Christmas period. Now, the official authorities and leaders of the war kind of rejected that idea, but not entirely wholesale. They, they did want to maintain morale, keep it high, you know, bring some sort of a, a festive element to the front line uh, fighters. 
And so they sent out a lot of cards and presents and packages and things to little gift boxes to the soldiers. Something like 400 to 500,000 packages were sent out to British soldiers. King George at the time reportedly sent a card to every single soldier. Uh, His daughter sent out some things as well. And the Germans were receiving boxes too, you know, from, from back home. And so a lot of times too, these these packages would have to kind of cross across enemy lines to get to to the soldiers. And so there was kind of this also informal truce to allow some of the mail to get through. Now, this all kind of leads up to a pretty remarkable story of what happened actually on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1914. And it's a little bit difficult to pin down exactly what happened here. There's a lot of different range of accounts. A lot of times they're oral accounts, sometimes uh, letters to back home, uh, sometimes diary entries. And it's... This all kind of makes it pretty much impossible to speak of what what happened specifically, because sometimes there's contradictory contradictory accounts, but also there is this element of you know sometimes a truce would happen in one area but not in another, and again it was very informal, so it's hard to say exactly what happened. And so to this day, historians will disagree about the specifics of it, but they all pretty much agree that. About 100,000 people, which is about two-thirds of the troops that were currently uh, in this area, are believed to have, particip- to have participated in some form or fashion in this truce. Now, a lot of accounts suggest that the truce actually begins on Christmas Eve, where there was some, some carols that kind of spontaneously broke out from the trenches, uh, kind of across the, the destroyed ground. You know, and there's a, I'll, I'll actually read a... A letter or document from one of the members of the 5th London Rifle Brigade. He says, first the Germans would sing one of their carols and then we would sing one of ours. Until when we started up, O come all ye faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adeste Fidelis. And I thought, well, this is a really, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. And so this kind of festive nature carries over into Christmas Day as well. And the next morning, uh, there's a couple soldiers who very bravely kind of creep out of the trenches, calling out Merry Christmas. I think it officially starts, well, depending on where you, where you are, sometimes it was the German soldiers who would come out first, call, calling out Merry Christmas uh, in English. Sometimes it was the British who would do the same. Uh, they would hold up you know, signs saying, you know, if you don't shoot us, we won't shoot at you. And so over the course of Christmas Day, Troops kind of came out, they exchanged little mini gifts, you know, cigarettes, food, buttons, hats, whatever they had nearby. And this phenomenon kind of took different different forms depending on where you are across the Western Front. Uh, there's one account that we have where a British soldier apparently got a haircut from a German barber on the other side. Uh, there's several mentions in letters of kind of impromptu soccer matches. Uh, they didn't necessarily have like a soccer ball, but kind of makeshift balls with, with whatever they did have. And they kind of broke out into kind of these un- unorganized matches between the different sides, sometimes even on the same team. And so the truce was widespread across a lot of different locations. And again, it kind of took a different form depending on where you are. But uh, I will mention it was not universal. There is evidence that in many places firing did continue. And at least two occasions we know of, a truce was attempted, but the, the soldiers who attempted it were shot at by opposing forces. And so it's important to understand this was not necessarily peace, but it was a truce. Uh, and hostilities did return. Some some places it actually returned later that day on Christmas. 
Uh, others, it took almost a week until after New Year's Day. But it was a kind of a fascinating little story here. And it's almost important, too, to recognize that this wasn't necessarily just a, an example of you know, Christmas spirit and chivalry, but it's also a tale of subversion of authority because these truces were very unofficial and actually to an extent they weren't even allowed. A lot of times the leaders of the war, the generals, didn't want their soldiers participating in this. In some cases they actually ordered them not to and they still did it anyway. And it's basically a story of the men on the ground deciding that they simply were not fighting the same war that their superiors up the chain of command were fighting. In a lot of these places, these kind of no man's land with the trench warfare, you know, sometimes the enemy troops were so close that you could almost hear each other talking, you, know, how you hear each other's conversations, smell their cooking. And this was uh, hugely controversial because a lot of times some of the, the higher ups believed that being so close would affect the morale of the soldiers and pre uh, prevent them from, me from being able to do their to do their duty and to shoot at the enemy. And so there were actually a handful of official memos that said, you know, friendly in intercourse with the enemy was explicitly prohibited and these sorts of things. You know, fraternization was 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 outlawed and banned. But the people or the soldiers themselves have kind of done it anyway. It's been kind of a testament or a symbol of some of the power of humanity in a very, very dark hour of history. And as I said, this was kind of a tale of subversion too. When reports got back to say the high command, a lot of these, the generals were quite angry with it. Uh, they believed that fraternizing with the enemy that they were you know, hoping to defeat would cause them to, to not carry out future orders as well. And so there was, um, there were a lot of strict orders after the, this happened too, that if it happened again, there would be a very harsh punishment for any man who was caught kind of refusing to fight refusing to fight their enemies here. Now, as you might expect, communication between the various sides was fairly difficult. Uh, there were not many troops among the British soldiers who could speak German, uh, but a lot of the Germans who had been who were fighting had actually been employed in Britain before the war, uh, oftentimes in restaurants and things like that. And so it wasn't that uncommon for some of the German soldiers to speak English. Uh, there's a couple tales where um, there was a, a captain by the name of Clifton Stockwell, who was a British officer, and he wrote in his diary of, of one German who spoke excellent English and you know used to ask questions, you, you know, call out from the trenches asking questions about you know, specific locations in London and how, you know, how is so-and-so doing with their shop and things like that. And you know eventually he finds out that this guy used to be the head waiter at the Grand Central Hotel in London. And so you, you have a lot of these kind of connections where communication was able to be had because of some of these, these kind of oddities. Now, even without communication, though, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that did kind of pop up was this interest in soccer, or as they called football, right? And so this was something that was common across both Britain and London. But at this point, soccer had been played professionally in Britain for 25 years or so, and in Germany for a similar time period, uh, maybe a little bit less. And so eventually, Someone produced a ball made out of something, whatever they were able to cobble together, and they started kicking it about. And there's actually a legend that there was a match played in one location between the British and the Germans, kind of a friendly soccer match, uh, which the Germans claim they they won three to two. And so this this legend almost is is fascinating, and I I don't think we really know the details of whether or not it actually happened and in, in the way that it's told, but we do know there's evidence in at least three or four places 
there were soccer matches that took place between troops from opposing armies, which I just find fascinating. Is you know one day you're firing at each other, and the next day you're you're playing soccer with each other, and then you go back to firing at each other the next day after that. So it's it's really really kind of interesting. But I did say I want this to be a short episode, so I'm going to go ahead and close things out. But I want to end with reading a handful of these these notes and letters and diary entries that we do have about this. This first one comes from a, a British soldier. His name was Frederick Heath. He was a private. And he's talking about when the Germans would start calling out. He says, uh, they said, English soldier, English soldier, a Merry Christmas, a Merry Christmas. And I'm going to quote him now. He says, for some little time we were cautious and did not even answer. Officers, fearing treachery, ordered the men to be silent. But up and down our line, one heard the men answering that Merry Christmas greeting from the enemy. How could we resist wishing each other a Merry Christmas, even though we might be at each other's throats immediately afterwards? So we kept up a running conversation with the Germans, all while our hands ready on our rifles. Blood and peace, enmity and fraternity, war's most amazing paradox. The night wore on to dawn, a night made easier by songs from the German trenches, the piping of piccolos, and from our broad lines, laughter and Christmas carols. Not a shot was fired. And here's another one. This one comes from a German soldier, a man by the name of Johannes Niemann. Uh, he recalled on Christmas morning, he says, The mist was slow to clear, and suddenly my orderly threw himself into my dugout to say that both the German and Scottish soldiers had come out of their trenches and were fraternizing along the front. I grabbed my binoculars and, looking cautiously over the parapet, saw the incredible sight of our soldiers exchanging cigarettes, schnapps, and chocolate with the enemy. Later, a Scottish soldier appeared with a football, which seemed to have come from nowhere, and a few minutes later, a real football match got underway. The Scots marked their goal mouth with their strange caps, and we did the same with ours. It was far from easy to play on the frozen ground, but we continued, keeping rigorously to the rules, despite the fact that it only lasted an hour and that we had no referee. A great many of the passes went wide, but all the amateur footballers, although they must have been very tired, plays, played with huge enthusiasm. Us Germans really roared when a gust of wind revealed that the Scots wore no drawers underneath their kilts, and hooted and whistled every time they caught an impudent glimpse of one posterior belonging to one of yesterday's enemies. But after an hour's play, when our commanding officer heard about it, he sent an order that we must put a stop to it. A little later, we drifted back to our trenches, and the fraternization ended. Next, this is a 19-year-old private from uh, the British Army, a man by the name of Henry Williamson, who actually ends up going on to be a nature writer. And this is a letter that he wrote to his mom. Dear Mother, I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a coke fire, opposite me a dugout, wet with straw in it. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench, but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary, and the pipe is tobacco. Of course you say, but wait, in the pipe is German tobacco. Haha, ha, you say from a prisoner, or found in a captured trench? Oh dear no, from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches, and exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all day, Christmas Day. And as I write, marvelous, isn't it? And then I'll last, I'll leave it with this one. This is the story of the, the haircut. And so this comes from a man who was, a, again, a British soldier. He actually goes on to be a, a prominent humorist and cartoonist, Bruce Barron's father. So he says, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think. And being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and with a few deft snips, removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. The last I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Bosch who is patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. 
And actually, I'll read one more. This one comes from uh, Captain Robert Patrick Miles. Uh, he is a, a British soldier. Uh, this is an edited letter that he wrote, but it actually was ended, ended up being published in the newspaper following his death. And he actually dies uh, about five days later. I think he dies on December the 30th of this exact year. So this is a kind of an interesting and sad letter. But he says, uh, Friday, Christmas Day. We are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable, a sort of unarranged and quite unauthorized, but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is, it only seems to exist in this part of the battle line. On our right and left, we can all hear them firing away as cheerfully as ever. The thing started last night, a bitter, cold night, with white frost, soon after dusk, when the Germans started shouting Merry Christmas, Englishmen, to us. Of course, our fellows shouted back, and presently large numbers of both sides had left their trenches unarmed and met in the debatable, shot-riddled no-man's land between the lines. Here the agreement, all on their own, came to be made that we should not fire at each other until after midnight tonight. The men were all fraternizing in the middle. We naturally did not allow them too close to our line, and swapped cigarettes and lies in the utmost good fellowship. Not a shot was fired all night. And I'll leave you guys with a quote. This is from another letter. I just I'll do the last line of it. Uh, he's actually the last known surviving Scottish veteran of the war. Uh, this is an interview he gave in 2003. He says, it was a short piece in a terrible war. So with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out. I appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. I know this is a kind of a special holiday episode. I'll have another episode next week. I know it'll be New Year's Eve, but something will, will drop Hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas and enjoy the holidays. Hope you're able to spend it with family and friends and, and people that you love. In the spirit of Christmas, I want to just say again how much I appreciate all of you guys and all of you do for me and listening to my podcast and supporting it. I really appreciate all of you guys. Hope you're having a wonderful holiday and I will talk to you guys another time here on Nutshell Politics. You can always find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney or Facebook at J Robert Kinney. Find me there, follow me, subscribe, hit that subscribe button on this podcast, and I will talk to you guys next time. But until then, my name is Justin Kinney, this is Nutshell Politics, and I'm out in three, two, one. Oh,